During my first year of seminary, I was at my home church, Emmanuel Presbyterian in Mesa, when um, I was there for, I think it was Christmas break, and the pastor invited me to preach in the morning service. It was my very first sermon, and would you believe that that Chuck and Karen <laughs> were there? In addition to my wife, Erin, Chuck and Karen were there, you know, 20, 20, however many years it was ago, and it was a terrible sermon. I mean, it was so bad. I ended up trying to, like, give a George Washington illustration, which, you know, has, has got to be the most gripping of all illustrations. Um, George Washington in the middle of the service, but I ended up, like, forgetting the illustration, how it went halfway through, and I mean, if you've ever done any public speaking, when you kind of sense the ship is going down and there's nothing you can do about it, um, that, that was my first sermon. It was a, you know, just an absolute disaster. But, I mean, if you've—I mean, what do you expect, right? It's a first sermon. Like, every first sermon it should be a train wreck. Well, there's one that isn't. So the Apostle Peter was a follower of Jesus— and he too was like in seminary of a sort. He had studied in the school of Jesus for three years. You, know, you could say the greatest professor, you know, the best rabbi ever. Uh, and then on the day of Pentecost, Peter stands up and he preaches his first sermon, his very first sermon. And lo and behold, 3,000 people are saved. I mean, how's that for a first sermon? I doubt like for the rest of his life, Peter ever preached a sermon where he had that kind of response from people. And yet his first sermon is a home run of all home runs. And it's not beginner's luck. It ends up being the work of the Spirit. He preaches, and it's, it's from, it's in Acts chapter 2. He preaches a, a three-part sermon or a three-point sermon. So that's where us, you know, preachers, maybe we get it from, is Peter's first sermon. Point one, he's riffing off of Joel chapter 2. Point two, he's riffing off of Psalm 16. And point three, he's riffing off of Psalm 110, his, his reading and interpretation of those Old Testament passages. What I'm going to do today is focus on the second of those two points, the Psalm 16, which we just had Ivan uh, read. Um, and see how Peter interprets the Psalm 16 portion. The only other thing I want to say before we read from Acts is that we believe that Jesus of Nazareth died on April the 3rd, 33 AD, outside the, the city um, walls of Jerusalem at about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And we call that in Christianity Good Friday because as horrible as it was, it was the, the greatest good could, that could ever be done. Um, in Christ taking our sins on the cross. We believe he rose again from the dead two days later on Sunday morning, April the 5th. But have you ever wondered, by chance, like what was happening in the intervening time between Good Friday and Easter Sunday? Uh, church tradition calls it Holy Saturday. And what I want to do is talk to you about um, something I'm really excited and passionate about. Here's what took place, I think, on Holy Saturday. And Peter gives us um, the information. Acts 2, 22. Here he is preaching mid-sermon. Mid Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. And then we have this really interesting very like statement about divine sovereignty and human responsibility and culpability. Notice he says, This man was handed over to you, by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. In other words, God wrote this as part of the story. 
You freely chose this, nevertheless, and are culpable. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold of him, just as David said about him, Psalm 16, I saw the Lord before me, because he is in my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest in hope, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. He continues, fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried. His tomb is here to this day, but he was a prophet, and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would one day place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. But God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. If you were around last week, you would have you know, heard more about that. For David did not ascend to heaven and yet said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool of your feet. Therefore, be it, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Amen. This translation renders the Greek here as the realm of the dead. But in Hebrew, the same word gets translated. It's the word is Sheol. In the Greek, the word is Hades. And so what is Sheol and, and Hades? Um, David elsewhere speaks about it. He would say things like this, like, No one praises you, O Lord, or give thanks to you in Sheol. Like, rather, Sheol is this like, grim and gloomy place of silence where the souls of the departed are separated from God and from the land of the living. Now, oftentimes, Sheol in the Bible is either depicted as like this, the earth opening its mouth to swallow someone alive, or here you have a later rendition of like this monster with this you know, gaping mouth, um, the jaws of death swallowing people. In other spots, though, Sheol is described metaphorically as a tidal wave of waters, of, of overwhelming, all-encompassing waters. David cries out, uh, The waves of Sheol encompass me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. Uh, Jonah, who was cast into the ocean and then was swallowed by some kind of large fish, in his poem, he writes, I called out of my distress to Yahweh, to the Lord, and he answered me when I cried to him from the depth of Sheol. And he likens like the belly of the fish and the, de- the depths of the water as, as being the realm of Sheol. So there you have it. But there's another way to understand Sheol. Um, I don't know if you've ever read this novel. It's the short story by Leo Tolstoy, The Death of Ivan um, Ilovich. Did I mispronounce it? I may have. It's No, no, it's Ivan Ilyich. Uh, as the title suggests, it's very happy, joyful Russian literature. 
Ivan is a government lawyer who's doing everything um, he's supposed to do. He's doing everything properly. He's devoting himself to law. He's pursuing a prestigious transfer to St. Petersburg. And he's periodically redecorating his house. Well, one day, as he's hanging the draperies, Tolstoy says that he missed a step and fell. But being a strong and agile man, he held on to the ladder and merely banged his side against the knob of the window frame. The bruise hurt for a while, but the pain soon disappeared. It turns out that the fall was uh, far more damaging than they, he realizes. A doctor goes on to tell him that he's suffering from a floating kidney. Uh, his condition worsens and worsens, and eventually he, he dies horribly from the complications of the fall. And what makes you know, Tolstoy's novel so haunting and is there's nothing heroic about Ivan's death. There's nothing noble or good or, or reasonable. Um, he falls from a ladder hanging drapes and spends the last week of his life screaming from his bed in pain. And there's this growing realization, and I mean, you see this in lots of um, uh, uh, thoughtful literature, a growing realization that, that a life that ends in such a pointless death, an absurd death, ends up making that life itself rather pointless and absurd. I mean, you think about it, like, if all we do, if all we do is, if the only reason we are here is because, basically, we got lucky, and the cosmic roulette wheel, you know, went black 34, and the enzymes and all uh, on some primordial swamp on the, on the planet Earth ended up you know, coalescing into energy and life and, you know, on and on and on. It was just, it was just pure luck. If we came from such an inconsequential beginning and then we have a, a non-consequential end, I mean, isn't everything in between inconsequential too? And so metaphorically, Sheol, not only is it the realm of the dead, but it speaks about people who, who die a, a pointless life. In the Bible, it's those who die violently, prematurely, stupidly, and those who die childless. Again, David, in one of his psalms, he's, he's frightened that, he, that King Saul is, is uh, pursuing him, and his enemies are pursuing him, and he's afraid that he's going to die young, prematurely, before all of God's promises to him um, take fruition. And he's, he's basically saying in the psalm, God, don't hand me over to Sheol, to, to a Sheol kind of death. All right, so what? If you follow me thus far, you should make the connection to what the Bible's greatest shield death is, right? Jesus of Nazareth comes announcing the kingdom of heaven, teaching, healing. He's only mid to late 30s. And then he's cut down in the middle of life on Good Friday, dying horribly, dying pitifully. Like if any death, if any death looks pointless, premature, and terribly violent. It is the death of Jesus of Nazareth on the cross. His death on the cross makes his whole life look meaningless. I mean, a a crucified Messiah at the hands of the Romans, at the hands of the empire, that is a failed Messiah, Um, a pitifully failed Messiah. This is the Eisenheim altarpiece. It was commissioned early 16th century in Germany. You may have seen this image before. It's about eight, I think, feet wide by 10 feet tall. Uh, it was, I think, originally commissioned for um, an abbey in somewhere in Germany. But it's a powerful depiction of the cross because it just shows just the, the pure patheticness 
of what it might have looked like for Jesus to die as he did with his you know, twisted, mangled fingers. And if you look closely, you see open sores on his body. Only the real cross, you realize the real cross would have been, oh, so much worse, so much bloodier. And if you look carefully with your uh, imagination, you can almost, you can almost see the, the jaws of Sheol standing there ready, you know, to snatch him, right? Enter the apostle Peter. Enter David in Psalm 16, who ends up telling us that something, something else is happening. Something else, not visible to the naked eye, was taking place on that, on that Good Friday. And so one thing you need to understand about the way David writes, and, um, and I might talk about it more next week, but in his poetry in the Psalms, he will basically put on masks, so at one moment, he will put on the, the mask of the sun. And so here, David is, is basically behind the Messiah's mask as he speaks to the Father. And then other times, he'll have the mask of the Father, and he'll be speaking to the Son. And here's what um, this, the Messiah is speaking through David. David said about him, and this is like Jesus speaking, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand. It is the Father... The right hand was a place of honor, uh, authority. Because the Father is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to Sheol. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known, Father, you have made known to me the paths of life. You fill me with joy in your presence. So the Father here is pictured at the at the son's right hand. And the father refuses to let Jesus' body rot as a corpse in the grave. And the father refuses to let the son's soul be imprisoned forever in the belly of Sheol. Now there's a powerful scene. Um, we'll, we'll come to like uh, more pop culture right now and, and not Tolstoy. There's a powerful scene in the Harry Potter series in the very last book. The, um, what is it? Oh, the... The Deathly Hallows. Harry and, uh, and Hermione go to a v- village called Godric's Hollow. And you know that Godric's Hollow is named after um, uh, one of the founders of Hogwarts, Godric, Godric Gryffindor, who lived there. It's also the location where some of Dumbledore's uh, family is buried. And then it's most significantly the place where Harry's parents are buried in a church graveyard in Godric's Hollow. You may, may remember the nighttime scene. The snow is falling and Harry and Hermione are afraid. They're being watched. They're being followed. So they're always looking over their shoulder to see who might be there. And they, they start looking through this old and dark churchyard, looking at the headstones. And finally, Hermione says, Harry, I've found them. And he walks over, and it's a white marble headstone. And it reads on one side, James Potter, and the other side, Lily Potter. And then I can't remember what the, the, their dates that they were born in. They were both born in the year 1960. And then, of course, they both died on the same day, October the 31st, um, 1981. They both died on, you know, Halloween, as they were killed by Voldemort at only 21 years old. And then at the very bottom of the headstone, there is the epitaph. And do you remember what Rawlings put there? The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Um, Side note, 
I used a Harry Potter illustration in my church back in Boise like 15 years ago. And there were people, there was one couple who was just like so mad and uh, so upset that, you know, you're talking about witchcraft in church. And so they ended up leaving the church. But uh, if only she could, if only they would have gotten to the last book and they would find that J.K. Rowling is actually quoting who here? He's qu- she's quoting the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And he goes on in verse 54 of 1 Corinthians 15. Death is swallowed up in victory. Now, what does that sound like? Death with its ravenous appetite. Sheol with its you know, mouth with gaping jaws and teeth. Death which swallows up everything, always like the one constant we know about in the universe is death is going to swallow. Like Sheol is going to have its feel. And Paul says in verse 54, death is swallowed by resurrection. It's reversed. It's reversed. The Apostles' Creed, I think, is really instructive for us here. You may remember, if, if, you're, not, if you're new to Christianity, the Apostles' Creed is like one of our most basic foundational um, belief statements. And in the Creed, there, it reads... That he, Jesus, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, and was buried. He descended into the normally, most of the recitations of the creed say he descended into hell. I I don't think that that's actually uh, an accurate, um, good translation of the ancient Latin from the creed. Now, this is one theory. It could be wrong. I could be wrong. But one theory is that originally the Latin of the creed said he descended ad inferna, that is, into the underworld, into Hades. But somehow, in time, because you can see how the two words are very similar, ad, it got changed to he descended ad infernos, that is, into the fire, inferno, into the hellfire. But the problem with that, of course, is Jesus did not descend into the lake of fire. He did not go to the place of eternal torment. Like, he did not go to what we think of as hell. He descended into Hades, into Sheol. Um, And so for this reason, you know, uh, there have been a number of churches uh, who have ended up, you know, modifying the creed and saying he descended into Hades. You notice that we say he descended into the realm of, of the dead. And that is very, very, very good news for three reasons. And these are short. Number one, there were three great feats that Jesus accomplished, I believe, when he descended into Sheol. Number one is he preached. (laughs) He preached victory. It's a very tricky passage, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 and 20. But basically there, you can look it up later, Peter says that Jesus went into the underworld, and he declared his victory over Satan and the demons and all of those who tried to destroy humanity. He goes into the quiet, dark, gloomy place where there is no sound, and he preaches a victory sermon. And I can only imagine that he preached for hours and hours because there was so much to tell about that victory. And I have, I mean, like, if I could go listen to any sermon in the world it would be the sermon of victory that Jesus Christ preached in the belly of Sheol, because that's the greatest sermon ever preached. He preached victory. Number two, he liberated the captives. This is taken from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 8 and 10, a passage 
that says Jesus went and liberated all of the Old Testament saints who had died in faith, awaiting the time that they would be released. Um, the, the, the saints being Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, even David himself. The suggestion is that they had all went to Sheol at their deaths um, and were possibly in a waiting place. The Jews had this idea, and I, I can't go into the details of it, a, a place called Abraham's bosom, where it was the realm of Sheol for the righteous. And so they were there waiting when Jesus came uh, and spoke up to them and said, hey, uh, guys, we're getting out of here. <laughs> we're liberating this place. And Paul goes on about how Jesus you know, takes them up in, in procession, ascension into heaven itself. Number three, and this is really extension of number two, he robbed the grave. He robbed the grave. Revelation 1, 17 and 18. I want you to see this. It's easy to overlook this because you read through it really quickly in Revelation where he says, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look. Now, he's standing in front of John at this moment. I am dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades in my hand. And it's almost as if when, when Jesus appears to John at that moment, he's dangling the, the keychain <laughs> that he had stolen from the jailer. That's what's going on. He had snatched the keychain from the hands of Hades. And he says, these are mine. He robbed the grave. He robbed Sheol. He robbed it dry. He emptied, uh, emptied it of all of God's saints and, ta- and took them to heaven. And that is why, going back to 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul, he actually taunts death. He's like, where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is gone, you know, through the resurrection and triumph of Jesus Christ. Um, the, the image that I had, I'll leave you with this uh, before I move on, is, you know, we always see action movies where you have this, the SEAL recon team that they go in undercover, they get behind any enemy lines. Maybe there's a door that needs to be um, destroyed, a gate that needs to be taken out, and so they set the C3, the explosives, all around it. And they, what do they do? They blow it out from the inside. That's what Christ did to the grave. He blew it out from the inside, the only place that it could be destroyed. Um, all right, let me, I have just a few minutes left. Let me give you one practical takeaway from this. I, I know sometimes I don't do a good enough job with the practical takeaways, but, you know, oftentimes a lot of, a lot of what I'm aiming for in my preaching is to make you, to make you think like, wow, God is amazing. <laughs> Jesus is so good and amazing. Wow, the Bible is amazing. I mean, Peter riffing off of Psalm 16 like this, like looking behind messianic mass, it's amazing, okay? It is amazing, but we have to love our lives. So what's a practical takeaway? Um, it would be this. It, understanding this really changes the way we face suffering. My dad is age 75. A couple weeks ago, he was in North Georgia, in the North Georgia mountains, um, mourning the death of his uh, college fraternity brother, roommate, a friend of 40 plus years, who, uh, Charlie Edmondson, he died, um, passed away after a long battle with cancer. And cancer did to Charlie what it does to most of us. You know, he lost his hair, he lost his famous goatee, in dad's words. He lost so much weight that he looked like a, you know, a cadaver. Um, 
Dad didn't go into all the details. He just said, yeah, it was kind of, it was really rough at the end that the cancer went to Charlie's brain and he did some really crazy stuff at the end of his life um, that made things you know, very difficult for his surviving family. It just wasn't a great death. And then, you know, dad tells me that the day before I preached the funeral of my dear friend and, and fellow pastor Phil Hunter, right, a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, death didn't treat Phil well either. He was out of his mind at the end. And, um, he was struggling badly. And it got me thinking, death doesn't, it doesn't treat any of us well. Like either you die too young, prematurely, missing out on so much of what life could have been. Like you have that kind of a shield sort of death, you know, or, um, or you shrivel up, you get old, you become barely recognizable at the end. And the question is, like this is the question, is that the end? Like do we just enter into this world um, by chance, and exit it in a whimper, and rot in the ground, and that's it. Is that is that all? And I think here is where, even if you don't believe in Christianity, here's where you should hope and want it to believe that it's true. Because the answer is not in the power of positive thinking, not in the power of Hallmark card sentimentality. The answer is, is that something really happened on that day in 33 AD with this man who died horribly on a cross and came back two days later. That death, it doesn't treat any of us well, um, but it's not the end. If it is the end, then Sheol reigns, um, but it's not. I mean, we all want the story of our lives to, like, be upward and ascending. We go on from, like, strength to strength to strength, and it doesn't. I mean, the Bible, distress, affliction, sickness, friendly, friendlessness, infertility, exile, famine, persecution, those are, like, all considered experiences of death. Um, but the Christian message is you will go through experiences of death, but if you are in the hands of Savior, Jesus Christ, you don't have to go through it in despair. Like, I didn't know this, but the Latin word for despair is simply de sperare. Anybody? Any? Anya, you took some Latin. Nope. De sperare, it literally means without hope. To be in despair is to be without hope. And Christianity is the religion of hope. It It's that even in death, we're never in despair. We're never without hope. And again, that's not just some sentimentally nice kind of statement. It's rooted in the historical events of Holy Saturday and Easter Sunday. And, you know, I think when you start to really internalize that, then you're able to, I don't know, say things like, oh, I didn't have you put it on the screen, but say things like the song I was singing earlier today. It's called um, Not For a Moment, and it's written by a Christian music group. It's kind of cheesy, probably, Carlos. Vertical Worship, that's a cheesy, that's a cheesy group name, right? But the words of the song, um, they're true, if what I just told you is true. Uh, Okay, it's not the best poetry, but You were singing in the dark, whispering your promise, even when I could not hear. I was held in your arms, carried for a thousand miles to show, not for a moment did you forsake me. Not for a moment did you forsake me. For after all, you were constant. After all, you were only good. After all, you were sovereign. Not for a moment did you forsake me. Not for a moment. 
In every step, every breath, you were there. Every tear, every cry, every prayer. In my hurt and my worst, when my world falls down, not for a moment will you forsake me. Because you are faithful, God. We belong to you. And you will never leave us. The reason, the reason that I can sing that and, and sing it with just you know, so much gusto in my soul is because of Holy Saturday and Easter Sunday. Let me conclude with this. Francis Collins is, was you know, super intellect. He was the chief of the Human Genome Project, project you know, mapping of the human genome. I mean, one of the greatest scientists that America has produced over the last century. Um, he also wrote a memoir called The Language of God, where he, it's his own spiritual memoir of how he went from being an atheist to a devout believer in Jesus Christ. And the path that led him to inquire about God and Jesus was actually a residency program he was doing when he was in North Carolina um, working with terminally ill patients. Um, the shield death that, you know, you and I, um, that I just talked about a, a moment ago and that you and I have seen, he saw especially in the lives of cancer patients. He saw it every day. He watched many people die like Ivan um, Ilyich. But what astounded him were the few number of people the patients who faced death with self-confidence and shalom. There was this elderly woman he, he talks about in the memoir um, who was dying, and she was one of the most cheerful patients he had ever met. And when he asked her, like, why? Tell me about your joy. He's, she'd always talk about Jesus. And one day then she asked him, the doctor, a question. Doctor, what do you believe? Um, he was a man of science. He earned a PhD in physical chemistry at Yale. He was, you know, completing his medical degree. Um, and he says that my face turned red. I felt so um, ashamed. And I stammered, I'm not really sure what I believe. And then the book goes on to chronicle how he became sure as he studied more about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He became sure that the Father who loved the Son more than life itself, that the Father would never abandon his Son to Sheol. And he will never abandon those who are his children, his Christians. Like the, the worst things in life, if these things, if what I just said is true, can only usher us into something infinitely better. And the logic, the logic goes like this, that if Christ is resurrected from the dead, if that happened, if that's true, then all bad things will work for good. Truly good things will last forever. And the best things are yet to come. And the best thing of all is, is love. Um, the only love that won't disappoint you is a love that cannot change, a love that cannot be lost, a love that's not based on the ups and downs of life or how well you live or how poorly you live, a love that not even death can take away from you, a love where a hero goes into the dungeons and rescues the prisoners. And you know what I'm talking about. Like Jesus is the only one who has a love like that. Amen.